Welcome to Bridging Chicago, a podcast that aims to connect our listeners to Chicago's business, community, cultural, and charity leaders. Brought to you by SATC Solution Center, L3C. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Bridging Chicago podcast. I'm Nathan Loveridge, a legal assistant with SATC Law, and we're continuing our two-part series featuring Kara Chicago, a nonprofit here in the city. Uh, and today I'm here with Maria Kim, its CEO and president. Maria is a very busy woman, and so I'm very happy that she found time to sit down with us and, uh, and have a chat. So thank you for coming in today, Maria. Yeah, um, I was really excited to look into your background to see where to start, and you have a ton of stuff that I was able to use, and so we could go a hundred different directions, but we'll kind of see where where the conversation takes us. But let's start with your beginning, where you grew up, how you came to Chicago. Can you tell me about what life was like for you when you were young? For sure. So I, I grew, I was born in the city, but grew up mostly in Skokie, a suburb okay. on the north side. Um, and I am a first-generation Korean-American, right? So my parents actually both came here from Korea. They met here in Chicago, and we were almost first movers back in that day. Mm -hmm. And I just remember living in this suburb, um, maybe being the only Korean on the block and in, in that area and in the school and so on and so forth, and really having that inform a lot of my life. And, And also remembering us as a household being this busy, like, kind of Grand Central Station, like all of my aunts and uncles would kind of come and descend upon our house in Skokie as their first stop before they settled into the U.S. So all of those things, I think, in some form or fashion inform who I am. Yeah, I actually read an article on uh, the CARA website um, about your relationship with your mom, and I thought that was really interesting. So I'd like you to talk a little bit about that, because um, one of the things that I read in there one of the lines was that uh, I watched her live her career in service to others for so many decades. I hope that she knows that because of the example she set, this is intrinsically a part of my DNA. And I was really blown away by that statement. And to me, that was like, wow, that that is awesome. And so can you kind of expand on that a little bit and what that means? For sure. But I mean, dude, you're making me cry in the first like <laughs> three seconds of the of the podcast. But OK, let's just do this. Yes, my mom... She is a 50-year nurse, right? So she came to this country. Uh, They had a program back in the day where where they sent people from Korea to uh, the States to finish their nursing education on the hopes that they would come back home and share what they learned back with their friends in in South Korea. But my mom met my father, and kind of the rest is history from there. So she spent the next five decades working at Rush, actually, and, and yeah, I believe that her profession is one of lifelong service. And I don't think it's a coincidence that I ended up following in her footsteps to a degree, service of a different sort, but service nonetheless. Yeah, and I know there are a lot of characteristics that make good nurses, a lot of characteristics that make good mothers. But for you, are there specific characteristics that you can point out that you're like, I got that from my mom. I, I can identify that <laughs> as like my mom slipping through in my work or in my life. You know, I so when you say somebody's in service, you think, oh my gosh, they're so <laughs> nice and sweet. And if you think about a nurse, like she's very Florence Nightingale or all the things. No, my mom <laughs> is like a kind of a, you know, brass tacks kind of a nurse, call it like they see it, um, mm-hmm. challenge you, push you, stubborn as hell. So maybe it's, it's, it's service with a side of sassy. 
that yeah. is very distinctly my mother and definitely something that I think I live out. Yeah, I love the, like, the, as, as you mentioned in the article, the toughest nails sort of, like, life's going to go on and you got to just do what you can and sometimes, you know, skin to knee, you scrape, you wipe it off and you go on about your day. Exactly but, right. Exactly yeah. right. So growing up in Skokie then, obviously you're, uh, you're very close to Chicago, um, although not technically a Chicago, <laughs> and so... We don't want to call you a Chicagoan, so people don't get offended. But, <laughs> um, but what was the dynamic of urban life for you? Like, what what was it like living in such a big place? Because I grew up in a small town, and so living in Chicago was was a real wake up call. But for you, what was the dynamic of urban life? I mean, in fairness, you know, I didn't live in a city until I was an adult, right? <clears throat> until graduating from university and returning back to Chicago, I did, in fact, live in the city. But growing up in a suburban environment, it wasn't my context, you know, except for church and where my parents worked. Yeah. They both worked inside the city. That was it. So I don't, I wouldn't call myself a city brat. I would say that I've earned my urban shops as an adult, but definitely not growing up. Okay. And how did you decide to study what you did? How, how did you come about your decision to... In undergrad? Yeah. Um, somewhat accidentally. So I started out actually pursuing journalism. And then I was like, meh, I don't think that that's the right call for me. And so I ended up... I think I got exposed to a class in comparative literature. I got sucked into the whole idea of stories written in this kind of a way. Um, stories that tell other stories about cultures and countries and things like that, and ended up majoring in comparative literature and French. Okay. That makes sense for what you're doing now. Yeah, totally. Like, <laughs> linear, direct Right, path right. So your parents must be very proud that you're using <laughs> your degree. Um, what, what was the idea yeah. with, uh, with what you wanted to do, maybe, at the time with yeah. <laughs> I mean, I would say, you know, a lot of liberal arts and other education, like I think university study is more about how you should practice thinking and less perhaps about what is okay. predictive about your career. Um, in my case, I ended up actually being in the private industry coming out of school and in, working in insurance for uh, about a decade and a half before I came to Kara. So I haven't had a linear path from jump. Yeah. Yeah. So for people who are maybe young in their career and they have that same thing where they, they are like, I thought this is what I was going to do, but uh, maybe they're in sales now or they're doing a desk job or something not in line with what they necessarily studied. Um, what would you say to them at this point, at the, the very young point in their career when, when they're kind of like, oh, I thought I was going to do this, but I'm not actually yeah. doing that thing yet? I would say the path is never clear until it's in the past. Yeah. Do you know? Like, like, and I think that if you get so married to a path uh, very specifically, you will end up maybe getting disappointed and worse, missing out on something that you didn't have your mind or eye exposed to because you were so committed to this was supposed to lead to that, was supposed to lead to that. Um, and sometimes that can be a bit boxed in. And... When you think about that, that sort of like, if you put yourself in this box, then, you know, you're not going to maybe appreciate what you're going through or maybe appreciate the, the work that you're doing or the lessons that you're learning in that place because you didn't necessarily want to be there. You didn't think you were going to be there. 
um, what, what's the attitude like for you to be able to get something good out of the situation that maybe wasn't ideal or Like what expected? you predicted yeah. or whatever? I mean, I think that um, like happy accidents are the best. You know what I mean? It's like when you go travel somewhere and you studied the book. You studied the book so hard, you're like, yeah, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to find this yeah. little gem because Fedora's told me to go to such and such. Mm-hmm. You have it all planned out. You have this great itinerary. And then you take a left turn because, oops, you know, you went off what the GPS told you or you got confused. And then you found this amazing other thing, you know. You saw two dudes playing chess and you were fascinated yeah. by that and you bumped into somebody. You had this incredible conversation like, what? Why would you want to reject yourself or prevent yourself from having that kind of an accidental awesome? Um, that's what I would want to say. Is like there's there's happiness in the accident, and and then I would love for people to embrace that on a more regular basis. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Um, insurance. Let's talk about insurance yeah. for a minute. Yeah, we won't spend too it's long really on hot. insurance. Don't worry. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what's the takeaway from your your time there? Because uh, I don't always think of it as this like really exciting like life learning journey but I'm sure there's great things because people enjoy it I just I don't know well I mean I think it's anything that's that's in service to other people this just happens to be it's something that people need we're providing something that people need and that bring them safety and peace of mind but for me that that piece of my career um, was maybe less about the work and the the product itself so much as it was about the lessons that I was learning in terms Mm -hmm. of how to be a good leader what are organizational dynamics? How do you think about strategy? How do you solve problems? How do you communicate? All of those things are the same, no matter mm-hmm. if it's insurance or law or a hospital. You know, those things are consistent throughout all organizations. Yeah, yeah. And being a, a Korean American female in not just that industry, but in any industry, really, um, you get a different perspective, obviously. Um, so what was the perspective for you? What, what, did, what are the things that you learned that maybe other people wouldn't have learned because they aren't you? Great question. <clears throat> I used to have this analogy that uh, when I was there, I went from the mailroom to the boardroom. And I say that because I started out as a temp, like a legit, oh, you know, okay. I was a temp services employee that was filing stuff in the mailroom for a few weeks and then got hired on. And over time kind of made my way through the ranks. By the time I got to the boardroom, which was the constellation of the executive team, I think I was one of three women on a 14-person executive team and the only person of color. Um, So long-winded way to say that I guess my vantage point was very like at an angle Mm -hmm. because everything was slightly different from the way that, that other people kind of saw the same situation. It was predominantly white male, it was predominantly older. Um, it was very underrepresented in terms of women and absolutely underrepresented in terms of people of color. I don't know if I had language and perspective at that time to give voice to that when I was at, at that age. But now looking back on that, I think I understand a little bit more about people dynamics as a result of having gone through that experience. Yeah, that's a great way of saying that because I struggle to figure out how to like help people understand like my perspective and like why I see things the way that I do but it is just kind of at an angle where we all may be looking at the same picture but you're kind of seeing it a little differently. What what changed about Maria in the time of uh, working your way up through the insurance ranks? Yeah I think um, I think I grew up a lot there 
I think that I ended up being, so my last post in this job was to be head of technology in this company. And most of my direct reports were 20 years older than I and male. <clears throat> and uh, I learned how to lead when you initially don't have somebody's immediate respect. Like, what does that look like? When you already know that the seesaw is imbalanced, like how do you kind of over time balance that out? Yeah. Um, I had, I'll tell you one funny story which involves a special word, which I won't drop on your podcast because this is a family show. <laughs> okay. Um, but I had this one guy who reported to me and I had to terminate him. Like it, it wasn't working out. We had to kind of shake hands and break ties. And in his exit interview, he said to my friend who was the head of HR at the time, he said, you know, I can't stand Maria because she's a pigeon manager, a pigeon manager. So my friend Johanna was like, wait, what? what? What is a pigeon manager? And he goes, a pigeon manager is somebody that runs into a room, S-H-I-T's all over the place, and then runs out. <laughs> <laughs> and I share all that to say, like, because for him, the, the perspective was uncanny that a woman leader would come in and be like, yeah, no, that's not right. That's not right. That's yeah. not right. That's got to get tighter. We got to turn that upside down. I'm stepping out. Um, so let's take care of that yeah, and blah. Yeah, yeah. Now, I'm sure I didn't do it elegantly. I'm sure there's all <laughs> kinds of things in my communication that I could have done better. So there's there's takeaways for me. Absolutely. Uh, but but in the beginning, I was crestfallen when she told me that story. I was like all up in my own like noise about, oh my god, I can't believe that he felt that way and all the yeah. things. And you know, it takes some time later, and now it's a badge of courage. And we have this little joke where she's like, you know, where's your pigeon manager badge? You got to be wearing that loud and proud. So yeah, I want to expand on that a little bit. You're sharing that. You made me think about this idea where when you have a female leader, maybe you're not used to a female leader. We always talk about, you know. If it were, I shouldn't say we always talk about, but I've heard people talk about, you know, if it's a man, then he's a strong leader. If it's a female, then, you know, she's, like you said, a pigeon manager mm -hmm. where you're just coming in and exploding and going out. Mm -hmm. And so we kind of look at that a little differently. But I think about when you have a new leader, and especially when you have a female um, non-white leader, you have to do things differently and you have to see things differently. And so there's learning on both ends. You're learning as a new leader, and they're learning how to kind of interact with you and how to learn from you and how yeah. to do what you're asking them to do. So what is that dynamic like? Because to me, that seems so tough on both ends, really, to, to have to be like, okay, I've never been led by a female, never been led by a Korean American. So it's, it, it has to have some you know difficulty there, but also for you saying, like, I, I have the same objective as any other male, white, non-white, whatever um, colleague. So what is that whole learning process like? Yeah. So first of all, I don't know, I don't think that people are conscious of those things, right? It's not like, it's not like this person was looking at me and saying, <clears throat> he might have for gender because I think gender norms are more. But back in that era, I don't know if it would have occurred to him like, oh, is it because she's a person of color, mm -hmm. that I'm having this visceral reaction. I don't know if we had that intelligence or that level of, of, of empathy as a society, not this individual in specific. So I think, one, it, there's recognition of the, of the unconscious bias that people have, right? Yeah. I think, two, I'm a, I'm a huge Stephen Covey freak. Like, I love, you know, um, how he proselytized about leadership and things like that. And one of his basic habits and seven habits of highly successful mm -hmm. people is seek first to understand then to be understood, 
seek first to understand, then to be understood. So I think my job in those moments as a learning is to figure out, okay, what does this guy want? He wants to be respected. He's tenured in this business. He's had success in other places. So he doesn't want to be communicated to as though his competence is being questioned. He wants to be respected. So check myself. How am I communicating with him? Like, Really step outside your own body and be like, what does this guy want? And what do I want? Mm-hmm. And where, where do our self-interests coalesce so that we can inch this conversation or this interaction forward? Um, sometimes I think we're so quick to react that like we don't slow down and just say, wait, wait a minute, there's probably a common ground in here if I just pull back for one hot second and figure out where this guy is coming from so that we can move forward at the same time. Yeah, and that's just a lesson that you can take anywhere, no matter what you do, no matter who you're interacting with. I think that's a great lesson that we can literally use every single day. At some point, you decided to go back to grad school. I see you went to the University of Chicago. And so what point in your career was was that? Was that after the insurance? Yes. So it was was actually, I was chief operating officer at CARA at the time. Okay. So I went to, I went to get my MBA late, you know, and, and decided to do that just to have a new set of toolkits in case Mm -hmm. I ever wanted to be in a different role than COO for, for an organization like ours. Yeah. What was it like for you when you uh, first got offered that CEO position? My predecessor, his name is Eric Weinheimer, a great inspiring leader that leads Forefront, which is a, an affinity organization. And he and I, when we first started working together, were more like a, a little bit of Captain and Tennille. You know, we, there was definitely a one-two punch as it relates to how our roles coalesce. So first I was a, the development director, and it seemed like a natural progression okay. to move into chief operating officer over time. I was really blessed to have that. Yeah. For people who are considering going to grad school, maybe they're partway in their career or, you know, even maybe they're still an undergrad. What kind of spurred that decision for you or or what would you say to someone who maybe is considering going to grad school or thinking about whether it would be helpful for them? Sure. So I think um, for me, the decision was in my in my mind, I was kind of atrophying in certain skill sets. Like I'd, <clears throat> you know, I felt too comfortable. And if you ask my friends and they, and you ask them like, hey, is Maria more of a poet or a quant? Most people would say she's a poet, not a quant. So then I would say, okay, well, what can I do to make myself uncomfortable and help address this piece of me? Why don't I go get my MBA? Now, for me, I did it way later and I already had maybe 13 years or so of management experience at a prior. So I mean, it was a different perspective. I was coming in not not necessarily to go after the leadership chops as I was about uh, the other toolkits that you would get through an MBA. It depends on what you want. I, I think that um, you don't necessarily have to go straight away. I think for certain people, if they don't go straight away, they'll never go because it's very hard to go back to school when you leave the school track. But if you feel like you've got it in you, you've got the muscle in you to be able to re-enter later, then I would say go do some window shopping in IRL. You know what I mean? Go yeah. do some window shopping <laughs> in the real world so that you can come back and, and be like, yep, I'm going after that degree with very specific intention and because I want it. Because you will find that you'll study and learn in a very different way than you would if you're more transactionally trying to get the three letters after your last name. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I I'm sensing that your life in general has kind of um, been done in angles. It seems like there's a lot of angles in your life. You know, 
obviously being a minority, being a female, uh, kind of going to grad school late, there's a lot of angles going on. And so what is that like for you to kind of see a lot of things in life from different angles? I mean, I, obviously, I, I knew that, uh, that there would be certain ones, but I mean, it's just amazing to me how many, how many times like this is happening here. I guess for me, it doesn't feel like that. So, so that's good. For me, there's there's balance and logic in it, and maybe that's because of what we what, how we started this conversation, which which was like the path isn't clear until for me anyway until it's in the past. Yeah. And so for me, yes, of course, I did you know 13 years in private industry, and now it's been 13 years actually in the purpose sector. So mm-hmm. there's symmetry in that. That makes sense to me that that happened, and it makes sense to me that somewhere along that way when I felt like I was flattening out that I did something to boost my skill sets. The next time I feel like I'm fat flattening out, I'm going to do something else crazy to, to boost my skill sets because I think that we're supposed to keep punching at a higher weight. I think that we're supposed to keep like pushing our skill sets in new and different ways. Yeah. Let's talk about Kara. It's very important. Would love to. We hope that you were able to listen to Jesse Teverbaugh, our first of the two-part episode. Um, really had a great conversation with Jesse and really appreciate him coming in as well. But um, I'd like to start with just the core of CARA Chicago. At its core, what is the organization and what does it do? So I would say that we are boot camps and businesses that help people experiencing poverty to get back to work. And what I mean by boot camps is like full and part-time training programs that get to the core of who you are and the core of the skills that you want to build in order to re-enter the workforce. And businesses being social enterprises or companies that we actually own and operate that hire our folks, help them build their skills so that we can then place them into more permanent employment with yeah. uh, the resume that they've built up with us. Yeah, two words I saw that stuck out to me um, when I was looking at the background of Kara, you mentioned one, the social enterprises. The other thing that I thought was really interesting was uh, it talked about self-esteem. And for me, that was, I read that and I was like, wow, that is huge because it's something that so many of, I I would almost say most of us struggle with, um, finding good self-esteem, good self-awareness. And so for you, what is important about self-esteem and why Kara, you know, makes that part of what it does? So I would say that um, as a society, particularly in this country, we talk about poverty pretty linearly. Mm -hmm. We talk about poverty as it relates to poverty of assets. What do I not have in my pocket, right, in order to kind of live the American dream? I think at CARA, we believe that there's a deeper poverty at play, and that poverty is a poverty of esteem. And sometimes that poverty of esteem is anchored in poverty of relationships. Like I don't have enough of a bench of people who love, care, and dream about me in order to make sure that I'm okay when I hit a rough go. Yeah. And so I think when we we want to attack poverty of assets for sure, and we do that through the power of employment, but we realize that the road to get there is often to address the poverty of esteem along the way. So we focus on inner stuff like like forgiveness, you know, who do I need to forgive in order to really focus on my future? Or what relationships do I need to cure? Do I need to heal so that um, I've got the strength of a network when I replug in to employment and other things? Yeah. So when you do things like that, like you were talking about power, power of esteem, power of people, the objectives have to change a little bit, I would assume. You can't just look and say, okay, are we being successful in the same way? Like, obviously, 
you're you're helping people have the skills to go and get jobs, and you can say, okay, well, X number of people got a job this month or this year, or whatever. But when you're looking at other objectives, saying we want people to be able to forgive, we want people to be able to know who they are and feel good about that, and all these other things, how does that change the objective, or how does that change those success rates for you? Yeah, I think what you're pointing at is, you know, it's hard to measure. Yeah, how people feel differently if they've got stronger richness of esteem and things like that. So the, so one good news about that is because we feel like it's on the road towards alleviating poverty of assets, we, like all of those success measures are good. How many people get jobs? At what rate? With what level of retention? How many people reunite with their families and move into more permanent housing? All of those are derivatives of solving for poverty of assets and solving of poverty of esteem. But more specifically, we we also measure how people's hope has changed. What was it like in the beginning versus what is it like downstream? Do you feel differently about your future? Can you set a goal today that you believe you can achieve? Do you Can you name at least one person who is in your corner if something goes awry? And those more intangibles that define a sense of hope and buoyancy in somebody's life is also a way that we measure incremental success. Yeah. I was uh, very lucky to get to be invited to uh, your morning ritual called Motivations, uh, where I got to experience their kind of kickstart for your day, which was amazing. I I absolutely loved it. And um, just full of energy, a lot of people sharing their stories, sharing where they're at in the program, sharing like how things have changed and um, singing little songs, which just adds so much fun to it. But for me, I think uh, part of it was just hearing the the confidence that they have or that they're learning and sort of the way that they're like, I'm going to take this out into the world. That was what was really inspiring for me because it was like, I've changed not so that I have money, my family has what they need, my you know, we have a home. Obviously, you know, we want everyone to have the resources that they need. But when those resources, when them having those resources helps the world, I think that's like a huge thing. What is happening in that community and particularly in that moment, um, and I'm so glad you were able to experience it, is that if you're surrounded by people who are rooting for you, if you're in this common collective that has the same set of aspirations and you guys are all marching towards the same thing, you'll realize that you're unlocking a bunch of cool stuff that was in you all along. Hmm. And so the genius of this is that the assets are everywhere. They're not just in the community of Kara, but they're in the individuals that we have the honor to serve. And our job is just to chisel away at it and let and let, and let let everything shine, right? That's yeah. our job. Yeah. yeah. And so your, your statement, the assets are everywhere. Um, talk to me about that in the way of Chicago and its neighborhoods, because... People look around, and it doesn't always seem like that. It doesn't seem like the assets are everywhere. They seem a little more concentrated. Um, and so can you expand on that, kind of what you mean by that and, and the impact on neighborhoods in Chicago in that? Yeah. So I would say I've, ha- I've had the good fortune of uh, serving on Mayor Lightfoot's transition team, and that was truly one of the honors of my career so far. And the same types of conversations would come up, right? And I still stand by this thesis that the assets are everywhere. The investments may have been differently distributed. 
So if we think about it that way, the assets are everywhere. I'm looking outside of your beautiful office. I see all the architecture and the <laughs> vibrancy of downtown Chicago. There is equal assets inside our neighborhoods on the south and west sides of the city or in, in our neighborhoods that have been most stricken by poverty in that there are beautiful people, strong leaders, vibrant small businesses, uh, great culture, the the kind of embers of what makes a community super strong, strong faith communities, great education, all of these things. And our job is to not wipe away that, but to double click on the investments or on the assets and in the areas where maybe we can shore up the strength that's already there, distribute our investments more wisely. That is a call to arms that I think Mayor Lightfoot has purely embraced and something that I think all of us collectively can be a part of. For people who want to do this, how do they, like, where is a good starting point where they want to say, okay, you know, I want to help people understand that, that there are resources available to them and, and try and connect them with those? So I think uh, there are probably at least two distinct ways that really help people be a part of this larger movement, because I, I do believe that that's what we're talking about. I'm not mm-hmm. here simply to talk about CARA. I want to talk about the fact that there is a movement of people and firms that want to create opportunity for our most vulnerable, and we can all be a part of that. Two ways how. One, talk to somebody. You know what I mean? Like if you see somebody who is unemployed or you see somebody who is experiencing poverty or you see somebody that is on a street corner, have a chat. Meet someone. Understand what their story is and do nothing more than that and you will have widened your perspective about who is experiencing poverty and why. Number two, recognize that Uh, We all, in some form or fashion, either ourselves or know someone who influences hiring in our city. You either have a bestie who's in HR or who knows the hiring manager of such and such, or you you can walk over to the human resources department yourself and ask, now what are our policies as it relates to people who may have been justice involved? You know, do we know that, geez, it's six to eight times more likely to be convicted of a crime in Cook County if you are black or brown than if you are white. Well, can we just sit with that for a second? Mm-hmm. Imagine if that were your kid. Wouldn't you be moving heaven and earth to make sure that your kid wasn't affected by the justice system? Absolutely you would. Sometimes people don't have those same, those same uh, assets. And so what are we doing to equalize the playing field? What is one thing that we can do today? If people are having conversations with people, and with companies that they influence, then over time, a lot of this stuff gets shaken up and we, we, we become a more inclusive employment city, you know, for, for all people. Mm-hmm. So in your day-to-day, what is it like for you to be that voice? Because that has to come with a lot of pressure. Um, so what, what is that like for you just in your average day-to-day? <laughs> So, I mean, I think uh, a couple things is I, I give myself a lot of slack, for one. So for, I, I know I'm going to say, I mean, you can ask my colleague, Mark, who's with us today. Like, I know I'm going to say at least one thing really stupid every day. But if I already know that to be true, then the pressure kind of eases up a little uh-huh. bit. And I just I can just do me. And, and I know that my intentions are marching towards the right thing. And so we're all going to be just fine. Um, and two... It's not about me, right? Like, I think a good organization is about uh, how distributed the leadership is, how, how collectively we can communicate in the same voice. Um, and I'm, I'm coming off of a, a, a mini leave. Like, this is my first week back from a, a leave. And the organization is fabulous. People are, you know, singing the same song. It's one band, one sound. And that is because of a lot of hard work of some exceptionally talented, really smart people. Yeah. So 
I, I refuse to believe that um, we, we live and die on the sword of a charismatic leader. I believe that we grow and we expand because of the leadership of many people. And so how have you grown through Kara? Because obviously the, the, the organization exists to help people and you have clients that come in that contact you that, that want your help, but, um, but good organizations changed you as well. And so how have you grown and changed? Myself personally, you know, I've grown in that uh, I've learned more than anything else in the last uh, decade and some change that I've been at Kara that we are all in recovery. I believe that to be true. I think that, um, again, as a society, we default to a certain perception about recovery. Oh, that must be recovery from addiction. But I think what recovery actually means is recovery from a loss of some sort, mm-hmm. you know, a loss of a loved one, um, a loss of a job, a loss of a sense of family, all of these things. And I personally am in recovery myself, and, and, and getting to that epiphany was because of my work here. And as Jesse would say, he would say, sometimes you have to go through to get to the other side. So my epiphany happened at Kara. I'm going through that. What does that mean for me and all mm. that? And because I'm going through that, I'm going to get to the other side of, of being and remaining in recovery as a result. Yeah. And, and for your family, obviously your parents must be super proud of you, but, but for your family, what is it like for them to see you and do what you do and sort of see how you're affecting the city and how uh, your organization is doing that too? I think that, um, perfectly honest with you, living in a first-generation Korean-American, you can empathize with this a little bit, like, I don't know if they really get what it is that I do on the regular, I'm not going to lie, you know what I mean? Like, they just realize, oh, okay, it looks like she's doing cute things, it says .org next to the website, that must mean something good, you know, I don't know if they actually know, but I do know that my family, you know, kind of family by choice, the people that we have surrounding us that may not be related to us by blood, but the family, you know, that we have in our lives as chosen ones are like, yeah, she is doing her doggone thing. And it's changing Chicago and maybe even one day the rest of the country. And we should all be so lucky to find the thing that brings us that much joy. I want you to tell me about the future of two things. One, your hope for the future of the city of Chicago. And then two, your hope for the future of, of Kara Chicago. Oof. Well, good news is they're dovetailed, so there's that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I can't help but, like, you, you put me in front of this beautiful view, and I can't help but look outside. You think about the, the shoreline of Lake Michigan really attaches a lot of parts of, of the spine of Chicago, right, yeah. north to south. And, and the disparities between them are so significant. And yet when you look at it right now, it looks all the same. Mm-hmm. Beautiful sand, water. Ah, love it. So I think under, under the leadership of Mayor Lightfoot, accompanied by President Preckwinkle, given the momentum of Governor Pritzker, like we're on, we're on a crest of a wave right now. We have a real opportunity to have change that washes from the north to the south or from the south to the north. And that would be a pretty amazing thing. And, but I think what it, what it takes to bring it back to the earlier parts of our conversation is for people to recognize what is my self-interest here and what is my selfless interest. Like how can I be part of the community and make some sacrifices to be a part of the community and what do I uniquely want in order to advance this city forward. If we could do those things soup to nuts I think we we will look very different in four to eight years. And for Kara Chicago we are 
we are really plugging into a national movement. You know, we are about uh, fueling a courageous national movement to alleviate relational and financial poverty. And that means not just growing here organically in Chicago through our various businesses and what we do, but also taking the method and expanding it to, to new mm-hmm. markets beyond Atlanta, beyond Fort Wayne, where we are today, and, and to other places throughout the U.S. Yeah. Um, one of the things I wanted to talk about uh, that I don't want to forget is how Kara doesn't just see people to some finish line, but kind of seeing them through that. Um, I know that, you know, the the goal is obviously to get jobs and to get housing and to, to get people, you know, on the rock, but uh, it doesn't stop there. So can you tell us about what it looks like after someone has accomplished those objectives? Yeah, so we... We are not about what you might call transactional employment. We're about transformational employment. Like, is it sticky? Does it last over the long term? Does it ride the waves of all the seasons in our city and all the things? And that's not just the one year of pretty comprehensive services that we provide folks in their first year of employment, but we have an alumni association that brings that community and keeps them together for the long term. And we have one woman I I recall uh, seeing on our Facebook page, like she's in... Italy right now. You know, she just got her graduate degree and she's celebrating through travel in the UK and Italy and she's sharing all these pictures back with all of her alumni friends and I just think, damn, you know, just a few years ago, the story was so different. And here she is, a learned, educated LCSW about to do some crazy cool things, wow. serving people that were in situations perhaps not dissimilar from her own. Oh, and actually, for your listeners that don't know, licensed clinical social worker is what LCSW stands for. And and, and circle of life. Yeah. You know what I mean? Circle yeah. of life, not just for her and for the community, but also... Um, talk about seeing the world with new eyes like she's literally doing that to to celebrate her accomplishment we couldn't be more proud yeah absolutely um so unless you have anything else i'm going to close out uh our conversation but i'd like you to leave us with just one little thought for especially young people but just anyone who um is in their careers and just trying to get through uh, day by day and trying to see what's next and just uh, a piece of advice or a thought that you can give people out there um, who are listening. So I think I might um, end where we began, which is which is sometimes the journey is not that overt. And actually when it's not might be exactly the right time for you to double click into it. Like when you can't actually see what's next, when it's hazy like this and you can't see beyond a certain vista, then maybe that's the that's the exact moment where you should just be like, I got this. Take a step and see what happens from there. Yeah. Wow, that's great. I hope we all decide to take that one next step. Just one. <laughs> just one. So Maria, we're going to let people know how they can find you, of course. Um, so Kara Chicago, tell us how we can find you in all of the places. In all the places. All, <laughs> all the things in all the places. Yes. KaraChicago.org is our website, and we are easily KaraChicago on all social media, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, and LinkedIn. Great. Makes it easy. So make sure you visit any and all those places, learn how to get involved. And uh, Maria, thank you so much for coming in today. I want to thank uh, Jesse also, who was on the podcast, and and Mark for arranging all this, um, the KaraChicago team. Uh, You've been great, and we look forward to working with you in the future. And so thank you for coming on. 
Uh, thank you for listening to this episode of the Bridging Chicago podcast. for listening to this episode of Bridging Chicago as produced by the SATC Solution Center. As always, feel free to reach out to us on social media with your comments and suggestions. You can email us at solutioncenter at satcltd.com. Find us on Twitter and Instagram where our handle is at Bridging Chicago. And don't forget to rate, subscribe, and comment on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to this podcast. Nothing contained in this podcast shall constitute financial, investment, legal, and or professional advice. No professional relationship of any kind is created between you and the podcast host or guests. You are urged to speak with your financial, investment, or legal advisors before making any investment or legal decisions. Furthermore, the opinions expressed in this podcast are not necessarily the opinions of the SATC Solutions Center, Shank Annis Tepper Campbell, or any of its employees. This podcast is created by the host and guests' individual capacities. All opinions on this podcast are or have been rendered based on specific facts under certain conditions and are subject to certain assumptions and may not and should not be used or relied upon for any other purpose, including but not limited to or use in or in connection with any investment purposes or legal proceeding.